0: 4. I don't have a video for you this morning, or we're not going to do any polls or anything like that. I just want to get right into the text. We have quite a few verses to cover, so I want to make sure we have plenty of time to do that, and I also want to get you out of here at a reasonable amount of time. So Luke chapter 4, verse 14 through 30. We're going to read through it, and then I want to break it down, and then I have a point that I would like to make, and we'll wrap up. So uh, Luke chapter 4, verse 14. This is the this is kind of the beginning of of Jesus' ministry, um, and the only the only event we really have prior to this that we know of would be his would be Jesus turning water into wine at the wedding in uh, in Cana. Uh, but uh, other than that, this is kind of the, the the beginning of his ministry, or at least right towards the beginning of it. And so this is where Luke is going to basically set the argument, or the thesis, or the point that that uh, Jesus' ministry is going to make, and then he's going to exhibit that throughout the rest of his gospel, so he's kind of setting the foundation for what we're going to be observing in the life of Jesus over the next uh, several uh, pages of his gospel or chapters for us today. So it's important that we kind of get a good understanding of this because this is going to provide the foundation for everything we learn from this point on. 4.14, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. That's important to note. He had just been baptized, and the Spirit was one of the things that came on him, came down from him like a dove, right? We saw that when he was baptized, and now he's going to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and listen to this, everyone praised him. Everyone praised him. He had a good reputation. That's important because how we typically read this passage, because one of the things that Jesus is going to say here is that no prophet is accepted in his hometown, but the whole first part of this passage is talking about how everyone was praising Jesus and talking about how they were amazed at him. So he was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, so this is his hometown, that's where he was raised, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. Another note, you know, we we shouldn't just read past these lines as they come up, but we should look at them and investigate every single one of them in as much detail as we possibly can, and here we see it was Jesus' custom to go to the synagogue. It wasn't something that Jesus decided to do this one time out of the blue, but it was his custom. It was customary for Jesus to go to the synagogue on the Sabbath. And so, I wanted to point that out because I think it should also be customary for us to come together as a church and listen and learn from God and hear from God as he teaches to us. It was Jesus' custom. It should be ours as well. He stood up and read. Stood up to read and The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. This is great. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is the prophet Isaiah. This is a messianic prophecy that had been spoken about. This is what the Messiah would do. And so Jesus reads this passage and he's given the scroll of Isaiah and he, he, he looks and he decides to read from this, this particular portion, which we would call Isaiah chapter 61. And says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, which we just talked about, because he has anointed me to do these things, to proclaim good news to the poor, He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. This is a really interesting scene that Luke is setting up. It must have been a scene that, that had some notoriety to it because he gives incredible detail about, about what, it t- what took place in this event and, and Jesus' beginning of his ministry. And that day, people would stand for the reading of Scripture. So if you were reading Scripture, you would stand, but then as you went to teach, then you would go and sit down, which we're going to see Jesus would do. But, but you, can, you can see here this amazing thing takes place. We don't know if this was all he read or if he read more from it, but imagine the scene, if you will. Jesus stands up. He's handed the scroll. He reads, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's Favor. As Luke says, all the eyes were fixed on Jesus. So, like right now, in this moment, it's really quiet in here, right? It's really, really quiet. And the next thing Jesus says is, while every single person is listening, today the scripture has been fulfilled. The words you've just heard are fulfilled today. This was something that they had been waiting for for hundreds, if not thousands of years, waiting for the Messiah to come. And imagine, so everyone, there was no one in the room that questioned what Jesus had just said. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And look at it, it continues on. Remember it said everyone praised him, and then verse 23 says, all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. People are clearly astounded at what is going on with Jesus' teaching. And they, they say in this phrase, isn't this Joseph's son? Isn't this the son of Joseph, they asked? Isn't this the the son of Joseph the carpenter, the the Joseph that we all know? And a lot of times, you know, I think we read that with the tone of, oh, well, you know, this is just Joseph's son. How could he be anything? And that's because we're reading, you know, from what Jesus is about to say back into this. But, But could it be that they're saying, hey, this guy is amazing, and isn't this... I mean, this is Joseph's son. Joseph the carpenter, the carpenter that we know that works in this town, this is his son. Listen to him teach. Listen to what he is saying. This is astounding. But that didn't last long. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, do here in your hometown what you have heard that you did, what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. They would say those words to him, wouldn't they? Heal yourself. Now things are getting really interesting. All eyes are still fixed on Jesus. Perhaps some other, some other teachers have started teaching where they're seated around the temple, and maybe some other people are paying attention to them, although I, I imagine a lot of people would be still paying attention to Jesus with everything that's already taken place. And so he continues on as he's teaching, truly, I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. And where he's about to go is, is pretty astonishing I want to finish out the passage, and then we're going to come back and look at this in a little more detail. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years, and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. There were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him Off the cliff, but he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. So, if we're reading this, you know, without our presuppositions into it, it looks like things are really great. It looks like people really liked what Jesus was saying and they were astonished at his teaching. And then Jesus shares this one little paragraph of teaching. I'm sure it's just a summary, maybe there was more to it. But then, all of a sudden, all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. And they got up and were ready to throw him off the cliff. That's how, how mad. The other translations say they were filled with rage it's not like it's not like they just kind of got a little bit upset it's not like what happens on you know on a Sunday when the pastor says something that's a little bit convicting and and you feel like oh well maybe he's talking to me and so you know I'm a little bit bothered by it so I need to go and talk to him and set him straight after the service you know it's not it's not that kind of a thing it's they were they were filled with rage I mean you can imagine you know just like it's about they're about to go like all hulk on Jesus and they're just going to be controlled by their rage and they're going to throw him off of the cliff. What happened? What transpired here that made them so angry? Well, we've talked a lot about how Israel is, is you know, is, is God's chosen people. That is God's chosen people. And, and it was a kind of an ethnocentric religion prior to Jesus coming. It was focused primarily on God's chosen people, on the Israelites. There were some people that would come outside of of God's chosen people into the religion, but for the most part, it was the descendants, the literal descendants of Abraham, the, the ones who had come through the line of David and the others that had gone before their ancestors that they would talk about, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that would become the population of the people of Israel. So, Judaism was was an ethnocentric religion. If you were not a part of of the ethnocentricity of it, then you were an outcast. And what did they call them? They called them Gentiles, right? They called them they called them outcasts and outsiders and and there were whole parts of the region that they wouldn't visit, that they would walk around or that they would that they would avoid because they were not Jews. So here, right right in the midst of this ethnocentric religion of Judaism, Jesus comes and he makes this statement. Truly, I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon, or Sidon. I don't know how you say it. I've always said Sidon. That's probably because of Saigon, and I don't even know if that's how you say that word. So, um, but uh, first we hear the widows, right? And that is, that is a part of Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, that, that God cares for the widows. And that's something that's put on us as, as New Testament believers, that we're supposed to care for widows and orphans. And so, so that's, there's, there seems like there wouldn't be anything wrong with that. But then it says, I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Now you have to go back to 1 Kings to understand the context of what Jesus is saying. And here, and uh, what the widow that he's going to talk about, that, the, that Elijah was sent to, you find that in 1 Kings chapter 17, especially at, uh, verse 9 all the way through the end, you get this story. It's an amazing story. You really ought to go read it to understand what Jesus was talking about. But what Jesus is saying is there were widows all throughout Israel during this famine. There was a famine where the skies were shut for three and a half years. It didn't rain for three and a half years And so there was a drought in the land, there was no food, and there were widows in the land, and yet God did not send Elijah, his prophet, his his spokesperson, to any of the widows of Israel. He sent Elijah, his prophet, the mouthpiece of God, to the widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon, a Gentile outcast town and city. So Jesus is saying, God didn't send the prophet to the chosen people, he sent the prophet to the Gentile. Verse 27. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. So in the time when Elisha was the prophet, Elisha came after Elijah, And he prayed to have, you know, to carry the mantle, to have twice uh, the ministry of of Elijah, and so he's carrying this ministry, and as he's carrying on this ministry, there's, there's kind of a plague sweeping the, country, uh, the, the countryside, and, and lots of people are coming down with leprosy. There are colonies of lepers at this time, lots of people living together with other people who have this disease, and Naaman, who is the king of a Syrian nation who had probably been trying to oppress and attack Israel, comes to Elisha. This is that great story we've talked about right where where Elisha tells him to go and dip in the river, and so you know he's this this royal king he's a royal he's up high in in the uh, government and And he's dipping, he's going down, he goes down the first time and nothing happens, and the second time, and the third time, and the fourth time, and nothing happens. And, you know, he's getting irritated, agitated that nothing has taken place, And then, but he's urged to continue on, to follow through, to finish all the way through, and then he gets through to the seventh time, and when he comes up for the seventh time, he's cleansed, he's no longer covered in the leprous spots. But look at the point that Jesus is making— it says, there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha, God's chosen prophet, his, his mouthpiece to the people. And yet not one of the Israelites was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian, the, one of the leaders in a Gentile city that the Jews would despise. So here we are in, in, in the center of this ethnocentric religion that has been created called Judaism. And Jesus comes in and he reads from the scroll. And then he says, um, the prophet, the prophet that God is sending is, is well, he's, he's going to talk, he's going to have a ministry to the Gentiles, too. This Messiah that you've been waiting for, this Messiah that you've been looking for, see, they thought, they were under the impression that when Messiah came, he would come and be king. And in fact, if you read throughout the Gospels, you see that what happened was that they would try to make Jesus king by force several times throughout his ministry because they wanted a king, another King like King David, to come in and set up his kingdom and build up the kingdom of Israel and have a political empire that would control everything and start to uh, rebuild back like, like in the days of David and Solomon, this kingdom that had stretched far into the land. And so this is what the people of Israel were longing for and waiting and expecting for Messiah to be. But then Jesus comes and he reads this messianic passage, passage that says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me. And he says, today the Scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, and then after they're amazed at everything he's been teaching them, he says, oh, by the way, uh, we're not just talking to you. This is for everybody. This thing that you thought was exclusive to the people of Israel, this thing that you thought was going to be exclusive to, to God's chosen people, well, now everyone is God's chosen person, and God wants to spread out his love to all of creation. This is why all of the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They were furious. They were enraged. (coughs) How How could this Jesus, this son of Joseph, come in and say that this Messiah that we've been promised and waiting for is actually going to Care for the Gentiles, these outcasts, these people that have no place in God's kingdom. So they drove them out of town. We're going to throw them off a cliff. I'm going to come back to this uh, passage he quoted from Isaiah. Says the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. These words should sound familiar to us because this is what is at the heart of our church. Micah 6 8, that he has shown you, O man, what is good? What does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love mercy. And to walk humbly with your God. And that's what, what Jesus is talking about is going to happen. This is what Messiah is going to do. He's, he's going to seek to set the oppressed free. To proclaim freedom for the prisoners. To proclaim good news to the poor. The recovery of sight to the blind. This is the ministry of Jesus. This is why this is our heartbeat too as a church. Is that is We want to be a church that is about the same ministry that, that Jesus was about. But I don't know how much you've really read this and, and studied this and thought about it, but, you know, as we read it, we kind of take it maybe at face value, right? When he says, proclaim good news to the poor, that, that seems to make pretty good sense. But does it? Is that, is, that, is that really just at face value all that we should see here? Or should we read into the context of Jesus' ministry that Jesus was not just preaching to the poor, the literal poor people of the earth, but to those who were maybe poor in spirit as well? That his good news was was also for those who were wealthy, his good news was for all of humanity. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. This one might be a little bit harder. Did Jesus come to proclaim freedom for the prisoners? You know, all the people that were in jail while Jesus was ministering, did he just come and, and, and set them all free? Well, that doesn't quite seem to make sense because at least we don't know that that's what happened. What, what is it that, that this is talking about? Who were the prisoners? What were they imprisoned to? the recovery of sight for the blind certainly Jesus healed the blind there were those who were literally blind that Jesus healed but was it just those who could not see with their eyes or was it those who could not see what god wanted them to see with their spirit with their mind with their heart to set the oppressed free was it was it just those who <coughs> excuse me were under the oppression the oppressive arm of governments and And those who have been being taken advantage of in that day. Certainly, that that was part of what Jesus was speaking of, but is there more to it than that? Kind of where I want to finish up and and start to draw a conclusion here is Jesus was uh, taken to be thrown off of a cliff because of what he said. What he said was not popular in uh, the minds of the people who were there. And in fact, his entire ministry, he would share this kind of truth with God's chosen people. He would not shy away from sharing what needed to be spoken with the people who needed to hear what he needed to say. One of the things, you know, I, I'm certainly not the most uh, popular pastor around. Um, one of the things that, that has been hard for me personally is um, I feel like God has given me and given us who speak from God's Word the, the burden, the, the, the absolute necessity that we must share His truth, that we don't have the choice to kind of sugarcoat things. We don't have the option to make things softer than they were intended to be. That that what God shared with us and His truth, He shared it in the way that it needed to be shared and that our responsibility is, is to teach that and be as faithful to it as we possibly can and, and that we don't, we can't just make things softer because it's offensive. And in fact, I would argue that while it is possible to do this in the wrong way, that if we really love people, we will share the truth with them. I know that's not a real popular thing anymore. I know that's not real highly looked on in our society, that, that if we know the truth, but what we call the truth, as we get it from God's Word, as that truth conflicts with with what other people are calling the truth, then is it really loving to, to not address it? Of course, I would argue that don't take what I'm saying out of context, because if you know me, I would also argue that that we need to do it in a loving way, we need to do it in a gracious way, we need to do it in the context of a relationship and a trusting relationship with these people that we need to be willing to, if we're going to share God's truth with someone, walk alongside them for the long haul, walk alongside them for the journey, whatever God is saying that we must address in our lives, that that we don't just shout a truth at people and then walk away and expect them to deal with it on their own, but that if God has called us to share and live the truth, that that because we have been so loved by God and we are becoming more and more the truth of God, that God wants to use us to speak the truth, that we don't just proclaim the truth and then walk away and run, but that God gives us the truth so that we can walk alongside those who desperately need to hear the truth so that we can help them embrace the truth and walk away from the lies that they have believed. But if you know someone is careening towards a cliff and you see where they're headed and you know what they need to do to stop and to save their life and you don't tell them, you might want to hit the other pedal. Stop. Danger ahead. Is it really loving to just let someone careen out of control or is it loving just even though it may be hard and difficult for us to say what really needs to be said see in in the context of what's happening here jesus is saying what really needs to be said and he's starting his ministry in the way that it needs to begin I think you could easily make the case that, that he sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, that at least some of the prisoners that he wanted to set free were those who were imprisoned by the law. Certainly the Pharisees that, that Jesus would spend so much time talking with, who, who would never quite grasp what Jesus' ministry was all about, were imprisoned to the law. They were, they were prisoners to this law that had been intended for good, that God had designed to be for the good of humanity, and yet had, had just become a meaningless and mindless and soulless and heartless religion where you just had to fulfill all of the requirements. They were prisoners to the law. And certainly some of the oppressed, maybe not only this category, but some of the oppressed that Jesus wanted to be set free were those who were being oppressed by the law that God had created for the good of the people. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and the religious leaders were using this law that God designed for good to oppress the people of Israel and to control them and to manipulate them and to take advantage of them and to use them for their own personal benefit and their own personal gain. Certainly, some of the oppressed that Jesus wanted to set free were those within God's chosen people who were being oppressed by those who were prisoners to the law. And so Jesus enters this scene, and as he enters this scene, he, he sees what has taken place. He knows he, he grew up here. He knows what goes on. He knows how people are treated, and he knows how his law that, that God gave to Moses, that how it had been abused and manipulated and used for ill-gotten gain. He knows. He's seen it firsthand. He has experienced. As we see, he's traveled around, and as he travels around, he made it a practice to go into the synagogues and to teach. He, he knew what happened in the synagogues throughout the area. And so Jesus comes in to this, and, and he sees what happens, and, and he, he's going to make the case that, hey, Um, this thing that, that you're so wrapped up in, this thing that is so consuming to you, it is not the most important thing. In fact, it was only ever designed to point you to the most important thing. It was only ever designed to point you towards God. And yet, somehow, this thing that was designed to point you to God became a God itself. We'll read and discover throughout Jesus' ministry that He didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law. He and his life and his ministry and his sinless death on the cross and his resurrection, he would fulfill the requirements of the law. The requirements that we could not fill in our own strength, he would fill for us. So Jesus would not say that uh, you need to do away with the law. In fact, as you read, we're going to cover some of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and just a few chapters, but as we get through that, you're going to actually see that he's not talking about doing away with the law. He's, he says, no, it's, it's not thou shalt not kill, it's thou shalt not hate, and if you hate someone in your heart, then you've murdered them. He's going to say it's not, it's not just thou shalt not commit adultery, it's thou shalt not look on someone who isn't your spouse with lust in your heart. He's, he's going to take the, the requirements of the law and up them. He's going to raise them. And all of this to point us to our need for the Savior, to point us to the need that we cannot in our own strength live out this life. In fact, he sets the example for us here in this passage that that the only way for us to live and be who God has called us to be is to start where Jesus has started. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. In fact, the verse he would quote from, "...the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor." if we are going to be about this life that God has given us being the light in the darkness, we can only do it with God's Spirit dwelling in us. We can't do it in our own strength. We can't, by our own strength, fulfill the requirements of the law. We can't fulfill the requirements of what Jesus set up as the new standards for righteousness. We cannot do it in our own. The only way we can do this life and live this life that honors God is by being empowered by the Spirit to do it. Something that changed in my thinking this week and probably a correction that i need to make is is my view of the pharisees all throughout the time that i've been teaching here and all throughout my study i've been hard on the pharisees i've come down really hard on the pharisees and and how they were just they were just doing things and they were oppressing people and they were taking advantage of people and in fact that did happen but But it wasn't really until this week when I was studying this passage that I started to understand that that the Pharisees were actually in bondage. The Pharisees needed God's grace. The Pharisees where people, even though they, they were doing awful, horrendous things to people around them, they were desperately in need of a Savior, just like those they were oppressing needed a Savior, just like those throughout all of Israel needed a Savior, and just like those all, in all of the Gentile countries needed a Savior. All of them need the same Savior, and they all need the same grace. And I've been really hard on the Pharisees, but I don't really think that's Jesus' heart in all of this. In fact, I think I've spoken for Jesus in ways that I probably shouldn't have spoken for Jesus because I've spoken as though Jesus is condemning the Pharisees for what they were doing and what they were teaching, but could it be that throughout all of the Gospels Jesus is not condemning the Pharisees, but he's showing compassion on the Pharisees and he wants them desperately to see what he's trying to teach them. Could it be that, that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, even though they are oppressing people, are in bondage? That even though they are taking advantage of people, they are trapped by a broken, faulty, flawed way of thinking and living? I think that's absolutely the case. I think the Pharisees were prisoners of the law, They were were prisoners to, to the law, and they were not worshiping God. They were worshiping the law. They were blind. And Jesus came to recover the sight of the blind. They were oppressed. They were oppressed by by this, this law that they had been worshiping when they should not be worshiping it, but, but they were, in fact, oppressed by their own teaching, and they were oppressed by their own understanding and how they were not enlightened by what God would show them through Jesus so they couldn't see it yet. And we're going to see that they, they were sometimes kept from being able to see it. And the reason I bring that up is because a lot of times in our, in our day and age, we, we kind of come down hard on the Pharisees. We come down hard on the religious people. Right, we, we come down, well, it's, it's not about religion, it's about grace, it's about relationship. And I totally, wholeheartedly, 100% agree with that statement. But, but could it be that we're, because we're condemning and coming down hard on those who are religious, that we're actually sidestepping all of what Jesus intended his ministry to be, that, that he didn't intend us to condemn the Pharisees and the religious people around us, but that he actually just wanted to open their eyes so they could see the truth. He wanted to open their eyes so that they could see the literal, physical truth of Jesus Christ in their presence, and, and the call for us as his followers and as his believers is, is to become the same thing, that, that we don't become like the Pharisees who are oppressing people with our r- relationship-driven Christianity and saying, because you are not yet living to our relationship standard of Christianity, you are now condemned because you are a ritualistic religious person. Should we not have the same grace and compassion to come alongside them and say, hey, have you seen the truth? Let's walk through this together. I, I know it's, it's, it's easier to do the rules. It's easier to do the rituals. But, but, but could there be more, that, more to it than that? Could there be an actual relationship that God wants us to have with him? Could it be that that maybe you're trapped by something God doesn't want you to be trapped by, even in the name of God himself, you are trapped, which is what was happening with the Pharisees. In the name of God, they were in bondage to something God didn't want them to be in bondage to. And there are people around us who are in bondage to things that God doesn't want them to be in bondage to. And so, I know it's kind of popular, and I've been on that bandwagon in our day and age to kind of criticize the religious people, to criticize the the people who hold to things that they shouldn't hold to. For some, it's religion, for others, it's politics. That there are those who, who hold to politics one side or the other, left or right, I don't care. But people who hold to politics as, as though it's the most important thing, and they make all of the decisions and everything in life built around their political stance, not around the truth of God's word. And and yet sometimes we come down really hard on them. We we come down really, well, we don't have any mercy, we don't have any compassion. We just are critical. Maybe for some of us that was, that was your parents. Maybe your parents were really politically driven and, and they just tried to drill it into you and you rebelled against that and so you're not going to be political anything and, and you criticize your parents for it. But maybe what your parents need is not criticism. Maybe what they need is grace. And they need to see you being gracious, gracious to them. And maybe as they see you convert from being critical to being gracious, that they will start to see that maybe there's more to what we believe and there's more to what we know because it's changing our approach to the people in the world around us. And if that doesn't happen, if we cannot allow Scripture to change our approach to the people in the world around us, then we're still blind. Blind. the ministry of Jesus was not just for one group of people. The ministry of Jesus was not just for one religious sect. In fact, we'll see, and as John would explain, that God so loved the world. It's not that God so loved the Jews or that God so loved the chosen people. We we understand there are some theological arguments about that and we don't need to get into that, but, but God loves the whole world and he wants the whole world to come to him and he, that's his desire that he teaches us throughout Scripture, that his desire is that everyone and all of humanity comes to him. So we should not be, whether we're ethnocentric or religious-centric or relationship-centric or, or whatever it is, be, be those who exclude people and don't reach out to people and don't show grace and mercy to people and don't love people because of what we believe. In fact, we should be those who come alongside every single person God puts in our life and brings into and along our path that we may walk with them just like Jesus would walk with the Pharisees throughout his home ministry, desiring that they would understand even up until the moment that they were shouting for him to be crucified on the cross, he still desired that they would understand why he was really here. That's the call for us as his followers. It's the call for us as we, as we follow Jesus in the ministry that he has for us, as, as we trust that his spirit is going to come on us and, and anoint us to proclaim good news to the poor. It's not just the poor, but the poor in spirit, the, those who don't understand that, that he is that He has called us to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, those who are in bondage to things that they, that they don't even know what it is. They're prisoners to beliefs and understandings that have nothing to do with God, that, that He's sent us to, to bring recovery of sight for the blind, maybe the literal blind, but maybe there are those in our lives who are, who are blind to God, and He sent us to bring them the sight of God's goodness and His grace, that He has given us the ministry of setting people free from the oppression and not just those who are oppressing them, but those who are oppressed by beliefs and understandings and to proclaim that this is the year of the Lord's favor. This is the ministry that God has given to us. This is the passion that, that we must have as His followers. And as we head into the Easter season and as we look forward to celebrating not only His cross, but His resurrection, His conquering of death, hell, and the grave, and His ascension a few days later, and the sending of the Holy Spirit, all of this comes together to empower us to live this life that He's called us to live. We, we need to be looking throughout the next several weeks for some real intentional ways that we can actually be living this out in our day-by-day walk. It may not be popular, it may not be easy, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't do it. I am certain of this fact that there are people in each and every one of our lives right now that, that are believing some kind of lie that we know the truth about. That for all of us, we probably already have relationships with people and we already have what we need to share the truth with them and and to be willing to walk alongside them, but it's just kind of hard to cross that line to take that step of faith and actually start talking about the real important things. What I pray will happen for each and every one of us over the next several weeks, not just leading up to Easter, but that Easter just drives us and that it becomes a lifestyle for us as his followers, is that, that we are willing to look at, at the truth of what God says and be willing to proclaim it, even if it doesn't make us popular, but, but pr- proclaim it to the people in our lives that need it. so that they may be set free, that they may see for the first time who Jesus really is. Let's stand together. Let's bow our heads and ask you to close your eyes, if you will. I'm not going to be asking anyone to come forward or raise your hands today. If you're worried about that, you can rest at peace. But I want to give, I do want to give God space to work. No doubt throughout our time this morning, God has brought people to mind. God has brought people to my mind as I've been speaking. I'm confident that God has brought people to our minds in this room. And if he hasn't, that there, in the next probably few minutes, God will bring someone to our mind that, that he wants us to love in this way. I'm not going to ask you to say their name out loud or anything like that. But I do want you to think about them for the next few minutes. Picture their face. Picture who they are. Hear the sound of their voice. Think about what they're passionate about, what, what drives them. Think about their personality. Think about the things that they laugh at. And this is a person God desperately wants to bring into his family. God wants to bring them home. He wants them to sit at the table. To be adopted into the kingdom as a son or a daughter of the king of the universe. To enjoy the feast that has been prepared for them. And right now as we pray, I want to pray a prayer for them. I ask that you pray this prayer for them as well, that you that you pray through this prayer with, with them in mind. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this person. Heavenly Father, I see that they are a gift. I see that they are created in your image, that they were made in your likeness. I know from your teaching that you treasure them, that you know their name, that you have numbered the hairs on their head. Father, wherever they are at this moment, wherever they find themselves, I pray that you would send your spirit to open the eyes of their heart. Open the eyes of their heart that they may be receptive and willing to hear your truth. I pray, Father, for the lies that the enemy has deceived them with, the lies that they have believed, the, the lies they believe about themselves, the lies they believe about church, the lies that they have believed about you, their Savior. I pray, Father, that you would set them free from those lies, as they find themselves now prisoners to lies that are controlling their day-by-day lives, I pray, Father, that you set them free by your truth, and that the oppression they found themselves under, that they would find themselves start to be set free, that the things that they were once blind to, that you open the eyes of their heart, that they may be able to see them for the first time. Father, we pray that you do this, this work that only you can do, this work that only you can do in preparing them. We ask in faith that you do this. We believe that you are doing this right now in this moment. And now, Father, I pray that as you work this in their hearts, in their lives, in their minds, in their spirits, I pray, Father, in our lives, that that you give us the courage and the boldness to be the living truth of Jesus Christ that you give us the courage and the confidence to stand up and speak the truth that you want us to speak, your truth. Other truth, nothing else that anyone else claims as truth, but that you give us the courage and the confidence to stand up and speak the truth that God has come to redeem, God has come to rescue, God has come to restore, and that His heart for every single person that we have thought of in this room is that they come back into the family of God, that they start to be redeemed into the image and the likeness of Christ Himself, and that they be set free from the bondage of sin and hell and death and the grave and restored into the peace of the joy and the hope and the love of Jesus Christ. Father, we know that this is your plan that this is your desire that you have sent us out that you've called us to be those who are sent out we're the called out ones but we're also the sent out ones you called us out of the worlds but you send us right back into the world so that we may shine brightly the light of Jesus Christ because we have so greatly received the love of Jesus Christ on our lives and has been poured out on us in abundance you have called us to now go out and live our lives because of that great love and to go love those who are unlovable to go reach those who are unreachable to To those who don't seem to be deserving of mercy, we show mercy. To those who don't need compassion in the eyes of the world, we show greater compassion through the eyes of Jesus Christ because you have given us this great love. Father, charge us up with the love of Jesus Christ. Fill us up to overflowing with this great love and let it pour out of our lives into the lives of those around us and our week-to-week life outside of this building. And Father, we ask... We ask that you bring those names, bring those faces, bring those hearts, bring those souls, bring those spirits into your kingdom, whether it be through our church or some other church, whether it be through our Easter or through some other Easter, that you bring them into your kingdom, bring them into their seat that you have for them at the table, that they may see that they are loved by the King of the universe. We thank you for this, that you have given us this great work. Father, help us to be faithful and and living out the calling on our lives in Jesus' name. Amen.